Hello, friends. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Last week, the National Constitution Center hosted our third annual President's Council Retreat in Miami. It featured a series of meaningful conversations about the Constitution with a diverse group of illuminating speakers. During the retreat, I had the wonderful opportunity to talk about my new book, which is out this week. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and Defined America. After the talk, I was so honored to be joined by three of my heroes to discuss the founders and the virtuous life. Eric Slaughter, the Deputy Dean of Humanities at the University of Chicago. Melody Barnes, Executive Director of the Karsh Institute of Democracy at the University of Virginia. And the great columnist George F. Will. Dear We The People listeners, I'm so excited to share the conversations with you. And if you're moved to read the book and would like a signed book plate, just let me know. Enjoy the show. Dear friends, what better place to discuss the virtues of humility, self-abnegation, and overcoming the ego than with a dinner panel at the President's Council Retreat. I am so excited to talk with you about this quest that I've had to explore the history and philosophy behind the pursuit of happiness. I'm going to talk a little bit, and then what a thrill to welcome George Will, Eric Slaughter, and Melody Barnes to talk with me about the pursuit of happiness and the founders. So this project came unexpectedly during COVID. I was uh, reading about Benjamin Franklin's famous project to achieve moral perfection. And in his 20s, as many of you know, he set out to achieve moral perfection and he made a list of 12 virtues that he thought he should live up to every night. Uh, prudence, temperance, uh, order, industry. He saved the one he found hardest for last and that was indeed humility. <laughs> and he made a list uh, and he decided to put an X mark every night next to the virtue where he fell short. And he tried this for a bit, he found it incredibly depressing, but he decided that he was a better person for having tried. I knew about this system because a friend and I actually tried it a few years ago. About a decade ago, uh, a rabbi in our synagogue recommended the Franklin system, which was translated into Hebrew in the 18th century by a Hasidic rabbi who admired Franklin and wanted to share his wisdom with uh, Hebrew uh, questers. And my friend and I tried it. We'd put an X mark every night next to the virtue we, where we fell short. We found it incredibly depressing <laughs> and gave it up as Franklin did. But we also felt we were improved by the effort. What struck me during COVID was rereading the system in Franklin's autobiography. The, the epigraph for his project uh, was this. Without virtue, happiness cannot be and it was a, from a book by Cicero that I'd never heard of called The Tusculan Disputations. That was intriguing. Then a few weeks later, by another synchronicity, 
Actually, I was at the Boar's Head Inn in Charlottesville next to the University of Virginia, and on the wall was a list of 12 virtues that Thomas Jefferson had drafted for his granddaughters, uh, which looked remarkably similar to Franklin's. Uh, things like never put off for tomorrow what you can do today, or resolve to do what you ought and do what you resolve. What was so striking is that Jefferson's motto was also from this book by Cicero that I'd never heard of called the Tusculan Disputations. Without virtue, happiness cannot be. And when Jefferson was older and people would write to him and ask him for the secret of happiness, he would send a passage from this book, which said essentially, he who is tranquil in mind, who is neither elated by undue exuberance or despondent by overly great uh, despondency, this is the happy man of whom we are in quest, he is the virtuous man. So I thought after these two synchronicities, I've got to read this book by Cicero called The Tusculan Disputations. But, but what else to read? Soon after, I came across a reading list that Thomas Jefferson drafted for how to be an educated person. And he would send it to kids who were going to law school and friends who would write, and, and basically to many people who asked when he was old. And in the section called Ethics or Natural Religion, I saw at the top of the list Cicero's Tusculan Disputations. And then there were a series of other books of moral philosophy, uh, like the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Epictetus, as well as some books of Enlightenment moral philosophy, like not only John Locke, but also Francis Hutcheson, Lord Kames, and David Hume. I thought, I've got to read these books, because this is a gap in my education. I've had the most marvelous liberal arts education, and I'm grateful every day for the superb teachers at wonderful universities who taught me literature, politics, history, philosophy. But despite this uh, gift, I'd missed the great works of moral philosophy that were on Jefferson's reading list, so I set out to read them. Okay, so it's COVID, and then some, something unusual struck, and I was just seized by the inspiration. I think it really was reading how industrious Jefferson was on his reading list. He would recommend times of the day that you should read particular books. You've got to wake up before sunrise and read moral philosophy and uh, history, and then breakfast, and then you can move to, uh, I guess, math or something like that, and then <laughs> lunch, and you're down to uh, novels and enjoying wonderful literature in the evenings, and Jefferson specified which novels to read as well. So seized by this, and I'd never done this before, I found myself getting up before sunrise, reading from the moral philosophy, watching the sunrise, and then developing this completely weird practice of writing a sonnet, summing up the wisdom of the moral philosophy. I just felt like doing it, and it seemed extremely odd until I discovered that lots of people in the founding era did the same thing. Hamilton, Phyllis Wheatley, the great poet, John Quincy Adams would wake up in the White House, read Cicero in the original, write sonnets, walk along the Potomac, and then start the day. So there's something about this literature that inspires sonnet writing and early rising. So, and this was, I think, the most fulfilling reading that I've done in my life. Imagine a year of, of engaging in this habit, this practice, is really what it was. And I read this literature that I'd never read before, and what I read changed my life. It changed my understanding of how to be a good person, and it changed my understanding of how to be a good citizen. And uh, what I learned from the moral philosophy is that for the ancients, happiness was not 
feeling good, but being good. Not the pursuit of pleasure, but the pursuit of virtue. And they had a particular understanding of virtue, which is not intuitive to us. Uh, they were talking about the classical virtues of prudence, temperance, courage, and justice, which had to do with the improvement of character, with self-mastery, with self-improvement. We would use phrases like being your best self. Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics talks about uh, happiness as an activity of the soul in conformity with virtue. And by virtue, he uh, has in mind good character. And by good character, he has in mind temperance. Temperance is a synonym for the kind of moderation of the passions that creates a good character. And for all of the ancients, good character was a battle between reason and passion. Passion is a synonym for emotion. And they don't mean that we should lack emotion, but that we should moderate or temper or master our emotions so that we can uh, avoid unproductive emotions like anger and jealousy and fear and achieve the calm balance and tranquility of soul that Cicero and uh, Pythagoras and all of the philosophers believed was the essence of happiness. So if we had to sum up in one sentence, it, happiness requires a, a life devoted to the pursuit of self-improvement so that we can uh, be our best self and, and serve others. And that's what I learned from the uh, literature. And then armed with this light and learning, and not only armed with it, but imbibing it, feeling it, because really the feeling of alignment that living in accordance with divine reason uh, affords is, is really a, a, a feeling of, of harmony, of, of balance. Uh, Plato has a theory of the soul which defined uh, both personal and political psychology for much of uh, history. Reason in the mind, passion in the heart, desires in the stomach, and the goal of reason is to moderate and align our passions and our desires so that we're all uh, aligned with uh, the divine unity of the universe. It is ultimately a spiritual quest, and it is a very harmonious framework for both uh, personal and political self-government. I discovered also that for the ancients, as for the framers, personal self-government is necessary for political self-government. We can't govern ourselves as citizens in a democracy unless we first govern the unreasonable passions and emotions in our own souls. And that's why we constantly see the framers of the Constitution insisting that uh, without virtue, the republic will fall, that to imagine a republic without virtue is to imagine what cannot be and never has been. Virtue is important for democracy in two senses. First, uh, citizens have to uh, find the temperance, the self-mastery, to choose wise leaders who will put the common good, the res publica, above their selfish and demagogic ambitions. And then the leaders have to find the virtues in themselves to set aside their immediate political interests to serve the common good. It's so interesting that both politically and personally, virtue requires 
delayed gratification, sober second thoughts, resisting your first and most uh, immediate uh, impulses for gratification so that you can serve your long-term interests and those of society. So that unites the political psychology and the uh, theory of democracy, and it was changed the way I thought about the Constitution. Because when you read the Federalist Papers through this lens, you understand why Madison says that this is the first government in history dedicated on the proposition of public happiness. And the phrase public happiness occurs throughout the Federalist Papers because the framers thought, uh, again, channeling Aristotle and the ancients, that just as individuals have a duty to achieve political, uh, personal happiness, so societies are supposed to maximize public happiness. So just, can you imagine, I'm so fortunate that I, this subject just fell to me. I didn't seek it, but it was given to me, and it really was tremendously clarifying uh, and empowering on a, a personal and a constitutional level. The book tries to tell um, this quest through stories, uh, relating, uh, in particular, uh, portraits of the founders and their own struggles to achieve self-mastery. Uh, and to be better people. And what's remarkable is how central this was to their lives. They talked about it constantly. They, they uh, would write letters to their kids about it. Uh, they're uh, chastising themselves for their own failings until their old age, and constantly wondering whether they're fulfilling their duties of self-mastery or an industry or, and, and temperance, or whether they're, like the rest of us, losing their tempers, uh, descending to their worst selves, and also betraying their ideals. It, it's very striking, too, how explicitly they acknowledged the base hypocrisy and vice of slavery. None of the enslavers, the, the, the major ones, uh, in, uh, Hamilton and, sorry, uh, the Virginians, Jefferson and, and Madison and Patrick Henry, all insisted that slavery was inconsistent with the natural rights declared to be self-evident in the Declaration, but in their more candid moments, they acknowledged that they just couldn't be bothered to live up to the ideals. Patrick Henry has this amazing quotation, is it not amazing that I, who myself believe that slavery violates natural rights, myself own slaves, I will not justify it, I will not attempt to, I cannot uh, in, endure the inconvenience of living without it. He just was too, greedy, too avaricious, to use the Roman phrase that the framers themselves would use, to, to, inc to, to give up the lifestyle that slavery made possible. And of course, Jefferson uh, was notoriously, uh, similarly um, avaricious, as well as hypocritical in this respect. And the fact that he constantly kept insisting that slavery was a grievous evil that had to be ended at some time in the distant future, which kept emerging and, and becoming further and further away. And then that he uh, died um, having uh, freed only two uh, people in his own life who were his own children, and then freed two more, keeping his promise to Sally Hemings, uh, but left uh, such debts to his daughters that they had to sell Monticello and his own enslaved population um, at his death. So it's, it, it's in no way absolves any of the enslavers of their hypocrisy, but it's striking that they recognized it and talked about it in these classical terms, because the classical terms completely defined their moral universe. There are so many uh, 
um, inspiring moments in their quest as well. For me, among the most inspiring is Adams and Jefferson as old men having written a declaration together, split over the most explosive uh, party split in history in the election of 1800 with the rise of uh, partisanship, and then reconciled through Abigail. And they're writing these beautiful letters to each other, and what they want most to talk about is the pursuit of happiness. And in particular, the connections between the Eastern and Western wisdom traditions. And Adams is so excited when he learns that Pythagoras, the founder of Greek moral philosophy, is said to have traveled in the East and talked to the uh, ancient uh, Brahmin authorities and read the Hindu Vedas. And Adams wonders whether Joseph Priestley had completed his translation of the Bhagavad Gita. And Jefferson excitedly writes to him and says, I've got good news. Priestley finished the translation before he died. I can get it to you from Paris. And, Jeff and Adams is so excited. He says, this will show that Pythagoras took the reason, passion, and distinction from the East and from the wisdom of the Gita that we are what we think and life is shaped by the mind. That was the core of the Eastern and the Stoic wisdom, that we have to control the only thing we can, which is our own thoughts and emotions. And then Adams wanted to distill all of that into his personal creed, love God and all his creatures rejoice in all things. Jefferson counters that after a lifetime of reflection, he's no longer a Stoic or a skeptic and has become an Epicurean. And he, by that he means not the libels of the Stoics, which is hedonistic pleasure-seeking, but uh, the contraction, the rational contraction of desires so that we can live according to reason. And uh, just the fact that they're excitedly reading and learning and growing and voraciously uh, challenging themselves to pursue truth until the end is inspiring and also a sign of their great industry, which was the one virtue that all of the founders maintained until their dying days. It's so inspiring to see John Quincy Adams, too, having uh, lost the presidency, become, based on his own stoic reading, one of the greatest anti-slavery advocates of his generation, collapse on the floor of Congress with his last words, he murmured, I am composed a phrase that he got from Cicero, because it was really self-composure and self-mastery that were his ideal. And he always beat himself up for having not achieved enough, but acknowledged, he said, with more industry, I might have ended all war and slavery. He set a very high bar for himself. <laughs> but he thought he wasn't industrious enough uh, in this remarkable life of, of self-mastery and industry, but, uh, but at least he was composed. The book ends um, by tracing this notion of the pursuit of happiness through American history. And it's so striking that it was central not only to the classical education of the founders, but it was embraced by Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, who learned it in uh, popular readers like the Columbian Orator, which Douglass bought on the streets of Baltimore, paying in bread to the boys who were allowed to teach him how to read after his wicked master had forbidden that he be taught how to read. And he viewed that as a greater enslavement indeed than the shackles themselves taught himself how to read in the Columbian order, found the wisdom of Cicero and the Stoics and self-mastery, and he said that that changed his life and led to his own devotion to what he called self-reliance. 
And Lincoln got it from Murphy's English Reader, and uh, it was taught to people like Louis Brandeis uh, at the turn of the century. Ruth Bader Ginsburg got it from her mother, who told her to avoid unproductive emotions like anger, jealousy, and fear, and to focus on self-mastery and serving others. And then it just dropped out of the curriculum. And why exactly are notions of happiness changed in the 1960s and 70s from feeling good to, uh, from being good to feeling good, from the pursuit of virtue to let it all hang out, and you do you in the me decade, is a complicated question involving uh, changes in uh, psychology. Uh, David Brooks notes that uh, Freud changed our ideas from character to personality. It had to do with changes in political philosophy from liberalism to post-structural critiques. And regardless of its source, it certainly had to do with changes in pop culture, which stopped celebrating the virtues of self-reliance and began exalting uh, pleasure at all costs. I, I was remember yearning in the 1980s when I went to college for some alternative to the hedonism that was being celebrated by popular culture uh, and not finding it in the Puritan theology that I was reading as an English major because that required a degree of uh, acceptance of uh, truth by uh, authority and faith and also uh, readings of the text which struck me as, as unpersuasive uh, about predestination by faith rather than good works and so forth. And what I didn't realize, because this classical moral philosophy had fallen out of the curriculum, is that it was hiding in plain sight and it was just such a gift to learn about it and to imbibe it. There are many implications for me of this learning uh, which has redirected my thinking about constitutional education and, and personal education. And I think that the NCC has a great opportunity and, and responsibility to defend this ancient ideal, which is the liberal idea, and has, uh, also the American idea, and in, in, in a culture in which it's very much under siege. And the way to do that is by sparking curiosity about it and inspiring people uh, across the country of all ages to learn and grow and read and to uh, be inspired by, by these primary texts and by these ideals and to uh, apply them in their own lives. Uh, in, in the end, it all comes down to reading, and we face a great challenge for the fact that people are not reading today. That, that challenge is as deep as the political polarization that afflicts us, and uh, it's urgently important to inspire people actually to engage with the, with the texts. I, I, um, and, and that's just what we'll try to do. But in addition, it, we have an opportunity to change individual hearts and minds, and I'm just an evangelist for how wonderful it is to read these books. I remember very distinctly with uh, being a really young kid and going with my mom to the Library of Congress for the first time. The Thomas Jefferson Building, I think, is perhaps one of the most inspiring buildings in DC. And I was standing in that gorgeous rotunda and just being filled with wonder at the thought that all of the books in the world were in that one place. And, and now we carry all of those books around with us in our pockets. 
these cell phones and tablets and agents of distraction and browsing and idleness are also portals to all the wisdom of the world. And it just blows my mind that I was able to read, sitting on my couch, uh, free copies of the text that inspired uh, people throughout history or the actual books that the founders read with their marginalia in them. All of this wonder and wisdom is just glimmering out there waiting. All we need is the self-discipline to read it. So I'm really eager to uh, t t talk about how inspiring it can be to read and learn and grow and also how necessary it is if we're gonna preserve American democracy and the liberal idea, and we're gonna do that together. But now I have the incredible treat and thrill of discussing these issues with three of my heroes. So please join me in welcoming them right now. We're gonna begin with Eric Slaughter. Eric is a distinguished professor at the University of Chicago where he teaches a class on Thomas Jefferson's reading list. And I guess we met um, at an event a few years ago and I mentioned I was writing this book and you said, well, I teach a course on it. And tomorrow, Eric and I will convene a breakout session on the reading list and we'll run through some of the books. But tell us about what it's like to teach the course on the reading list, what the students take from Jefferson's wisdom about the connections between virtue and happiness, and what are the big uh, themes about divisions that the founders had about virtue and happiness that you teach? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, the first thing to say is that uh, my students have other classes, so they cannot fulfill Jefferson's injunction of his 12-hour day <laughs> devoted to uh, to the various um, uh, branches of philosophy. It's, I just want to start out by just saying thank you for for the opportunity to, to read the book. I got the chance to read the book um, in manuscript. Uh, this is really um, the best pandemic project I've ever seen. <laughs> and I think you've done an incredible service, um, uh, both, uh, both in this book and through the National Constitution Center's um, Founders Library of really helping us appreciate not just what the founders wrote, but what they read um, and what they made of it. Uh, and so um, the course I teach is actually a course on the Declaration of Independence. And uh, it, it traces um, you know, the early ideas about independence from uh, documents like the 1689 Declaration of Rights, and it goes through the drafting process, the editing process. Uh, they're introduced to the various uh, members of the uh, Committee of Five, so Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, all of whom are incredible readers. And it goes all the way up through uh, Douglas, Lincoln, um, and, all, and, and on and on uh, up to our own times about the ways in which the Declaration has evolved, and those three men were just uh, voracious readers. And, um, you know, uh, Jefferson accumulated a library of 6,500 uh, volumes um, by 1814, and at that point, the British had sacked the Capitol and destroyed the, uh, the first congressional library. Jefferson wrote a note offering to sell his library to, to the country. Uh, it met some Federalist opposition who, <laughs> they were not completely um, convinced that the, uh, that the um, 
that Congress should buy the, the ex-president's um, books, especially books like Voltaire's works and other, other infidel philosophy, they, they said. Um, but the Democratic Republicans were in charge and um, were able to get it through. But in, in any case, um, you know, Jefferson, uh, throughout his life, created syllabi for, um, for friends and family. Uh, we're gonna talk about one of those, um, one of those lists tomorrow. Uh, but he, Adams, Franklin, they love to tell people what to, what to do and what to read. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, uh, Jefferson um, ch changed his mind about the, the, the various things should be on the list, and you, you're able to, to sort of synthesize the top uh, uh, things from the various, um, the various lists. Jefferson, you know, sometimes read with a, a pair of scissors in his hand. Um, he sat, he did a number of things in the White House that were questionable. Um, uh, <laughs> one of which was to sit with the, um, a polyglot version of the New Testament, cutting it up and, um, and producing a, uh, a book of moral philosophy that he called the life and, uh, and opinions of Jesus of Nazareth, who he thought was the greatest one of the greatest moral philosophers. Um, John Adams loved to make recommendations as well. Uh, he was sometimes, um, sometimes he made them in advance of actually reading the, the books that he <laughs> recommended, which I think we all have um, done. Uh, he was quite, um, he was quite uh, surprised when he finally did read Plato's Republic that he, and was um, upset that he had been recommending it uh, so, so, so often, but he did find in there a, a sense that education was the foundation for, uh, for a political form. Um, he read with a pen in his hand, uh, and his, his books are now, have now been, I think, fully digitized by the digital, uh, by the Internet Archive, uh, archive.org, and you can see I mean, he was um, a, a, a marginalia reactionary of the best kind, constantly um, noting in the, in, the, in the margins about um, what, what pleased and, and more often displeased him about what he, he read, giving us a real sense of, of somebody who was not a passive consumer, of, uh, but, a, but an active reader. And Franklin, too. I mean, uh, many of you know his, uh, his autobiography. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a, it's an account of his life uh, before he enters politics, but that's a life of a reader. And um, he, you know, the, the moral virtues that he talks about much, much later in his life, in the 1780s, he goes back to the 1720s to create that, that list. And that list includes things like um, temperance, you know, eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation, which are, is a good um, thing for everyone to think about. Um, uh, but that was a phrase that he himself took from a book that he mentioned in his autobiography, which was Thomas Tryon's, um, uh, it's called aphorisms, um, but they, Tryon was a, um, a firm believer that uh, in animal rights, uh, he, he was a firm believer that um, any uh, meat was a kind of unprovoked murder. And um, he wrote what was essentially the first uh, vegetarian cookbook in the 1680s. <laughs> uh, Franklin loved this book uh, because he, he was able to convince his brother that he, um, sh that, you know, if, if his brother gave him the money for food, he would spend it cheaply on vegetables 
and then um, use the rest on books. And then he took exactly that phrase, eat not to dullness, right out of Thomas Tryon. But these were, these were um, you know, uh, people who, uh, the, the historians in this room, we spend a lot of time thinking very much about how these people, um, how these people wrote, what they wrote, uh, the Constitution, the Declaration. And so a book like yours that points us back to um, the, the material that they digested, um, and they really did, uh, they really, they were not um, shallow readers, uh, any of them. And they often read um, in ways that were, uh, you know, Franklin became a deist because he read books uh, of anti-deism um, and thought that the arguments were not very strong. Uh, and so read against the grain. So they were, they were incredibly active, um, active readers, and that's what it took, they thought, to develop a kind of virtuous citizenry. Superb. So exciting to hear all of that. Melody Barnes, we had the most wonderful discussion last night about the liberal idea, and we talked about liberty, equality, and democracy. We might add to the American idea, or the liberal idea, the pursuit of happiness. You... Uh, are at UVA, uh, Thomas Jefferson's university. His legacy is contested about many things. Um, describe, how, how, would you, how would you describe what the pursuit of happiness meant at the founding and what the big debates over it were and remain? Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you for this book. I mean, you all would expect someone sitting here to say something like that. But I, I mean that very deeply and sincerely. It is an engrossing book. Um, and the stories that you tell as you work your way through uh, the list of virtues are thoroughly engaging. So thank you for this contribution. Um, yes, I am at the University of Virginia. I also sit on the board of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation and uh, have spent quite a bit of time thinking about and engaging with Jefferson and thinking about and engaging with the questions that were at hand during that, that point in time. And it's really, it's interesting and it's something that certainly comes out in your book as well. When you think about, if you fast forward to the period uh, when the founders, many of them, were reaching the end of their life, the things that they were concerned about um, as they had spent most of their life developing self-government, um, setting out the ideals and the values for the country, this idea of virtue, um, both personal self-government as well as public self-government that they believed was absolutely necessary. The reasons you described during your book talk that in, if we were going to move forward as a country, we have to put aside our selfish short-term, um, short-term selfishness for long-term pursuits. And the ability to ex exercise and move forward in those values in a way that would be, allow the nation to move forward was absolutely critical. By the end of their lives, they were concerned about that the nation that they had helped create was in fact not, maybe not going to survive. And for Jefferson, he was concerned, deep, very deeply concerned about uh, the, the geographic 
um, disputes and this dispute around slavery. And certainly if you are at the University of Virginia, if you come to Monticello, and if you haven't, I encourage you to be there, um, you find yourself in a place where you have to grapple with and think what it was like to be Jefferson walking those grounds, walking through Mulberry Row, um, having owned over the period of his life 607 people and the things that you describe in your book. You've got Adams who is deeply concerned about virtue. Um, do we have enough civic virtue in our country to sustain what we have created? Does the population um, can have that kind of self-control? And you've got Washington, who's worried about partisan faction, Hamilton, who's worried about uh, whether or not the federal government is robust. And I think when you look at the things that they were concerned about at that time, in answer to your question, it's, they're also mirrored in the kinds of things that we are deeply concerned about today. And I think we are having a conversation with those same concerns at this moment. Um, the, the history and the legacy as a result of the regional conflict that was, that was slavery. A debate about, and we talked about it some last night, about the role of the federal government um, in, in our lives and the, ways that, the way that that plays out. Certainly the partisan faction um, and whether or not we can uh, take the time to move beyond the, the reflexive reaction to problems um, to really grapple with what the long-term implications are going to be, and do we have the health in our body politic that is a result of civic virtue to grapple with these problems in a way that allows our country to move forward? I think that is, those are the questions they were thinking about then, those are the questions that we are still grappling with today. And that long-term civic health question, the body politic, it is no mistake that we describe this in physical terms, is not healthy. So what are the habits? How do we exercise the muscles? What can we learn from this period and from the other philosophers and intellectuals of this day and, and the days that followed so that we can establish those muscles, so that we can build them, and so that our nation is healthier, that our nation is able to survive. Oh, that was beautiful. That was so well expressed. Uh, I'm just gonna repeat it because I wanna add that to our discussion of the American idea, but you said that the founders are, uh, uh, hopeful that people can achieve virtue which they described as long-term thinking, sacrificing short-term impulses and gratification for long-term interest. But then at the end of their lives, they weren't sure whether the experiment would succeed and they disagreed about whether citizens could find the necessary virtue and also what role government should play in that. And that's exactly the proposition that's being tested today. It's so true. George Will, uh, thank you so much for being here. You have written several books about the pursuit of happiness. So you wrote a book in 1979 called The Pursuit of Happiness and Other Sobering Thoughts. <laughs> you, more recently, you've written Happiness and Its Discontent. And in your great recent book, The Conservative Sensibility, you argue that America was the only country founded on the proposition of public happiness. But you note a disagreement from the time of the founding among 
Hamilton and Jefferson about what role, if any, government should play in making it possible for citizens to achieve the virtue necessary for the Republican experiment. Please discuss. Well, an example of Jefferson <coughs> helping government not legislate morality but promote morality was his greatest act, which was the Louisiana Purchase, was to get all this land so that they could have all those small farmers who by their daily rhythms of life would have the virtues he thought necessary. Whereas his adversary, Alexander Hamilton, also agreed that it was the job of the government to promote a system which created certain virtues. He just had different virtues in mind. It seems to me the reason we are having the same arguments that they had in Pericles Athens today in Joe Biden's America is that the political problem always and everywhere is the same. Human beings are uh, uh, opinionated and egotistical. That is, they prefer their opinions. <laughs> the question is how to get these people to live together. Well, if you live in Pericles Athens, someplace you can walk across in a day, a face-to-face -face society, then perhaps you can have a homogenized community without the plague of faction and more or less a consensus about the great questions of life. If so, then you can approach politics as the ancients did. Define the best and the most noble and pursue it. Well, 25 centuries later, we've seen how awful things can get. And beginning with Machiavelli and then Hobbes and then Locke, the moderns said, we have a better idea. Let's define the worst and avoid it. Hence the Madisonian revolution in political philosophy. Beginning with Federalist 10, hitherto the few people who had believed that democracy was either possible or a good idea believed that it had to be in a small face-to-face -face society because factions were the enemy of democracy and therefore a homogenized small society could be democratic. Madison, who famously said that if every Athenian were Socrates, the Athenian assembly would still be a mob, was less sanguine <laughs> about this. And he said, no, we have a catechism. What is the worst outcome of politics? Tyranny. To what form of tyranny is a democracy? Pray, tyranny of the majority. Solution, don't have majorities. That is, don't have stable, tyrannical majorities have majorities that are unstable, shifting coalitions of minorities. And the way to do that is to have an extensive republic bringing in a vast number of, of factions and to understand that the first duty of government is to protect the different and unequal capacities of acquiring property so that you will have this saving multiplicity of factions which will prevent the worst, which is tyranny. Well, I think uh, Jeff's book, which you're all going to read before the quiz tomorrow morning. <laughs> uh, Jeff's book, I think Jeff's opinion is that the framers took civic virtue, to use your modifier, not just virtue, but civic virtue, more seriously and hopefully than I think they did. I think they, to go, go to the other greatest, uh, the second of the two greatest Federalist papers, to Federalist 51, where Madison said, you'll see throughout our system the process of supplying by opposite and rival interests the defect of better motives. Good motives are fine, virtue is excellent, but don't count on either of them. 
We want to have a safe polity, almost that will work without anyone having good motives. Won't work ideally, better to have good <coughs> motives. But I think the framers had a hierarchy of virtues. They wanted virtues in the statesman. In the greatest understatement in the history of political rhetoric, it's in Federalist 10, Madison said, enlightened statesmen will not always be at the helm. <laughs> turns, out, turns out to be true. Uh, but they thought there, there would be ways of filter, sort of trickle up virtue and that you could get an, a minority of the really virtuous and then you would count on the virtue that Harvey Mansfield says the virtue of acknowledging and recognizing virtue. That's what they wanted from the mass of people. They wanted the mass of people to recognize virtues, which would necessarily be rare in a necessarily few people. This is, of course, an aristocratic mm -hmm. uh, leavening of our democracy. But then, as Harvey Mansfield likes to point out, an election is an inherently aristocratic uh, premise, which is that some people are better at things than others, and therefore uh, elections are preferable to lotteries because elections at least give you a chance of rewarding merit and recognizing excellence and nobility. So it seems to me we've always in this country talked about virtue, but basically it has been the virtue either of the yeoman farmer populating the American West or the crackling energy that, that uh, the immigrants, the immigrant child, Alexander Hamilton, wanted. The anti-federalists opposed the Constitution for exactly the same reason Hamilton supported it. They said, you're going to get a big government of this energetic, restless, muscular economy, and we don't like it. We want a more intimate government. Madison, in this case, agreeing with Hamilton said, we don't want an intimate relationship with our government. We want the government to be doing big things as an umbrella over this energetic people. But the, in that sense, the anti-federalists and the federalists agreed. They just disagreed about whether they wanted what this government was going to achieve. So we have always been talking about very little other than virtue. We often do it, however, in a disguised vocabulary, the vocabulary of what used to be called and should be called again the subject of political economy. So you so powerfully uh, teach us that uh, all sides at the founding are converged around liberating people to achieve virtuous self-mastery and happiness, but they disagree, as you said, about human nature and about the role of the government in accommodating. And you argue that Hamilton and Hamiltonians wanted a strong national government to unleash national energy so that commerce could promote habits of politeness and civility. And the Jeffersonians, who are much more idealistic about democracy on a small scale in human nature, want a night watchman state so that agrarian shires and farmers are able to thrive. Uh, Eric, I want to ask you about the relation 
among the founders different conceptions of human nature, democracy, and, and happiness. So let's, let's try this uh, version. The, the Hamiltonians uh, think humans are fallen. They fear and abhor democracy as the greatest danger. And they want a strong national government and a strong executive to, release, to, to resist populist pressures in order to allow the uh, commerce and energy that will allow all to thrive. Jefferson's so idealistic about human nature, dreaming of the perfectibility of man and uh, imagining these small shires of self-governing farmers, wants a night watchman state and is really optimistic that these little communities will be virtuous. And Madison, always the moderate, is uh, expects less of government views the Constitution as a means of contestation, a, a place for people to productively disagree. But he, at the end of his life, learns about the importance of public opinion and thinks that as long as public opinion can be educated by a new media technology, the broadside press, people will read the Federalist Papers and discuss them in coffee houses, and reason will slowly diffuse across the land, and that will ensure the long-term thinking that Melody said was the key to virtue. Have I got that right? And you teach the, the relationship between the founders' visions of human nature and w what they expected of virtue uh, help, help us understand it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think we heard last night from, from Charlie that the U.S. Constitution incorporates human nature. And I think that's probably true. It incorporates one idea of what human nature was. But the question of what human nature was was one of the great philosophical questions of the 18th century, 17th century as well. Locke's great essay on human understanding um, is a work uh, about human nature. David Hume's first book is called A Treatise of Human Nature. Um, it's one of the, one of the great questions um, that is animating uh, um, philosophers across, across this period. And I think, you know, we see it in big and small ways in the, in the in the constitutional debates and in the, the period of the American Revolution, every, everywhere from, you know, uh, the nature of bicameralism, right? That um, bi bicameralism is, uh, is, a prefer is preferable because, and should have different terms, term lengths, because the um, house is always going to be hot and passionate, and the Senate is always going to be cool and reasonable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? And you're trying to structure uh, that, right? Um, as George was saying, uh, Enlightenment statesmen are not always going to be at the helm, and part of, part of the project is to find those structures that will um, reinforce uh, uh, virtue for a population that may not have it. The, the question of virtue throughout this period is an extremely vexed one. And part of it goes to the, to the way in which Montesquieu, for instance, thinks about um, human nature. And Montesquieu was writing in the 1730s, 40s, uh, and trying to really reconceptualize what political thought is going to look like. It's not going to be the old style political theory of John Locke and Grotius and so forth, where you're, you have a kind of fiction of the state of nature. We're really looking at a kind of comparative constitutionalism. Um, and it's got a philosophic component insofar as he believes each polity has a different 
kind of spirit, right? Um, so despotisms and absolute monarchies operate with the passion of fear. Um, it, it's central to their operation. Uh, aristocracies operate mostly on honor. And republics can only operate with virtuous citizens, right? So you see a constant stream of anxiety about, the, um, about whether or not the population is sufficiently virtuous to, to support a republic in this period. That's why in, 17, in the 1780s, Franklin is um, looking back at the 1720s and thinking about his own uh, scheme for moral improvement. He's trying to imagine what are the practices that could be useful um, no matter what denomination of religion you were, or no denomination, um, that might provide uh, sufficient virtue for a population if, as you say, you know, self-government is largely going to be about the ability to govern one's self, right? So, uh, you know, these, these theories of human nature um, are up for grabs in this, in this period, um, but th throughout, you know, what you see is what I would call anxiety. Uh, uh, I mean, we have anxiety now about the nature of our populations. I could hear it in your um, Jeremiah uh, that you ended your book talk with about the, the, the we no longer live in a land of readers. Um, and, you know, I think you see some of that in this period. Think about all of those early bills of rights or declarations of rights that precede the state constitutions. Almost all of them, Hamilton makes fun of these in, um, in Federalist 84. Uh, you know, he says they're, they're like aphorisms that might make sense in a treatise of moral philosophy, but they don't belong in a constitution. And what he means is that they're just highly didactic. They're things like Virginia's, you know, the, the freedom of the press is one of the great bulwarks of liberty and can only be restrained by despotic governments. Now, that's not an enforceable um, provision. That's not Congress shall make no law respecting, you know, the, the freedom of the press. And so the language of all of those early state um, constitutions, their, their bills of rights, were highly moral. They, they speak the language of ought to rather than um, shall. So even something like the future Eighth Amendment appears not as, you know, um, excessive fines shall not be imposed, but excessive fines ought not to be imposed. Hmm. Um, because they were trying to guide legislators and so forth. Um, you know that I am, uh, as, as you learned, I, um, I'm a great collector of pocket constitutions, so I was very happy to get <laughs> a, a new one this, this, this weekend. And I've spent the last year or so buying them on eBay. And what, I, what I've learned from that is that, um, and I mean this as no disrespect to the learned um, law professors, lawyers, judges, uh, and, and um, committee members here, um, but the Constitution was mostly over time in American history read by children, I think. <laughs> I, have, I have some early copies here um, of, of, you know, examples of, of children's uh, copies of the Constitution. This one from 
1787 that was um, owned by an eight-year-old uh, um, named Nathaniel Gleason. I mean, imagine the, the joy of an eight-year-old getting a copy of the Massachusetts <laughs> Constitution as a present. But the, this is, you know, we tend to think of the pocket Constitution as largely a, a, a post-Watergate effect. But in fact, Tom, Tom Paine is the great theorist of the, of the pocket constitution because he, he says in his debate with Edmund Burke, if you can't pull up a constitution out of your pocket, you don't really have one. And he says in, in Philadelphia, in, in, in the Philadelphia state legislature, that's exactly what the legislators did and every family had a copy and, and so forth. Um, so shortly after Shea's rebellion, the printer Isaiah Thomas sensed there was a market this was a, a rebellion that happened, an insurrection that shut down court, courthouses um, and that called for radical changes to the, to the state constitution. Um, Isaiah Thomas in Worcester thought, I, I see a market here. <laughs> Nobody really knows what's in that constitution because they have, there's, it's not easily available, but if I produce a pocket version, um, you know, uh, then people will know at least if it's good or bad. Um, you know, the printer takes no, um, takes no uh, particular position. But like those other early state constitutions, the, the Bill of Rights is a highly didactic kind of thing, and you can treat it as, as something to be catechized about. The Massachusetts government in 1805 decided to recommend uh, you know, for all public schools, for all common schools, the Constitution, the Declaration, and Washington's farewell address. This copy, as a shout out to some of the teachers in the room, was in the school district library. Um, this one I, I showed to Sean earlier uh, um, because he had mentioned Jackson's nullification uh, proclamation, but it's a copy owned by a young woman named Phoebe Harnett. In, um, in the 1830s, and it includes not only the Declaration, the Constitution, and, uh, and Washington's farewell address, but also Jackson's proclamation um, against nullification. And why this is important, and why I think it, it is so important that the Constitution Center focus so much attention on that next generation, is that the revolutionary generation was extremely worried, very anxious. Um, they were anxious about their, the generation that had been had lived under monarchy and was going to experience a regime change to a republic, and they were worried about how their children were going to continue that um, revolution and continue that, uh, that form of government. Um, and I think that anxiety has never really gone away. Wow. <laughs> it's so moving. It's extraordinarily moving to think of an eight-year-old being given this constitution and, and reading it and, and printers and entire industries being devoted to educate the young in the, in the, in the science of politics and the constitution. And we've got to do it. Yeah, and it's why you have uh, I love the Constitution onesies out there. Absolutely, and and that that's the gateway drug to that's the interaction the <laughs> to the interactive Constitution. Absolutely, <laughs> who could resist? Absolutely. I I want to just tee up the right question, Melody, because you're so uh, incredibly uh, brilliant and kind of bringing the themes together. So the question, I guess, is the evolution of the pursuit of happiness over time from being good to feeling good, from self-mastery to let it all hang out. You, you do see it throughout the 
19th and early 20th century, Frederick Douglass invokes it, Tocqueville invokes it, it's invoked by uh, William Walker, all the great abolitionists and stuff. It does fall out in the popular culture. How would you describe the evolution? Why did it fall out and where is it today? And I'm sorry, why did it fall, fall, fall out? Well, move pop, from doing yes. good to, to feeling good? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. But, but before you do that, I just want to just take us up from the founding to today and the, what, the, the evolution of the pursuit of happiness in the American idea. Well, you know, there, there are several things that I've been thinking about as I listen to this conversation. I mean, one, and George has talked, was talking about this idea of... Uh, the small group that was involved in governing. And then we have the expansion um, of that group over time to include more. Um, but even the masses um, that were involved were a relatively small group. Uh, but throughout all of it, there was the idea and the, the importance that was placed on reasoning and education. Um, We've talked about the fact that I, I work at UVA, the relationship with Monticello. Uh, UVA, unlike most universities, is not built around a chapel. UVA is built around the rotunda, which was a library. And it is a reflection of this idea of the, the centrality of education, the centrality of, of reasoning, um, which the founders also believed uh, was absolutely essential to the health of the democracy, the ability to think for yourself. And um, we've, we've seen the challenge to education over time, the lack of civic education um, over time. You know, at some point, it seemed to, to fall out of favor. Um, we are also now seeing efforts to try and recapture that, um, part of efforts that we're part of with an organization called More Perfect and others to try and reestablish civic education in, in school. But the reason why I bring that up, and I think that that's more so important as we have importantly and necessarily seen the expansion of those um, to include more people in, our, in civic life and voting and participating is the absolute necessity for people to think for themselves. And now we are at a moment where civic education is challenged, the educational system is challenged. I know there's going to be a conversation about that tomorrow. And we also have a moment where um, the way that we receive information over that arc of time has also changed and challenges us. It has brought us benefits but it also challenges us significantly um, from the rise of social media. Today we talked about AI, but the many different ways that people get information and the, the, the important data point that disinformation travels six times faster than fact. So we, are, we have more people engaged. We have institutions that are not necessarily providing the kind of civic training um, that's necessary, and we have this influx of information that we are being bombarded with um, constantly. And no good way to have dealt with, to deal with that challenge or to be able to sift through that information in a way that people are able to actively think for themselves and reason, and all at a time when I think one of the biggest challenges we face 
is that people feel an existential threat. It shows up for people in lots of different ways, but people feel who they are, who they are to this country, what this country is, all of those, those things are being threatened and being challenged. And at a time when they're not able to discern and make wise decisions. It doesn't mean that we can't, it doesn't mean that we haven't been through challenging periods before, but I think when we look at that arc, we recognize the, the challenge that we find ourselves in um, at this particular moment and against the backdrop that, that you've described. Exactly, that's exactly right. The ability to think for yourself and to reason, that was the definition of the pursuit of happiness, virtuous self-mastery so that you could think for yourself and live according to reason. And that's exactly what's under siege in a world of social media and existential anxiety about identity and uh, a, a landscape where falsehoods travel further and faster than reason and truth. And therefore, the goal of the movement must be not only to spark curiosity about the Constitution, the Declaration, the American idea, in order to empower people to think for themselves and to live according to reason. And to, uh, we're really, in fighting for the American idea and the liberal idea, we're fighting, as we discussed yesterday, for the enlightenment, faith, and reason. And it is under siege, not only from our politics, but from technology and from a loss of faith in it, and that's exactly what we're gonna resurrect. All right, George, uh, will I just send us off into the night at the end of this extraordinary conversation. Frame it as, as you think best, but I, there are many questions I'd love to hear you on, including why happiness changed from being good to feeling good, what exactly explains that fundamental cultural shift that transformed our understanding of how to be a good person how important is it to resurrect it? Do you think our democracy is a machine that can go of itself, or is it important to resurrect some commitment to self-mastery? And is the point of, what's the point of civics? Do we teach knowledge and the habits of deliberation or something more? Harvey Mansfield, I'll quote one more time. Harvey says, the aim of education is to learn how to praise. Because to learn how to praise is to learn that there are standards and that they can still be applied to things that are among us, excellent things. In 1981, I gave the Godkin Lectures at Harvard that became a book read by dozens. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. One, <laughs> one of whom is married to her. What are the odds? I mean, it's astonishing. Uh, you should hear what happens in our kitchen at home. <laughs> the, title, the title of the book was Statecraft as Soulcraft. The subtitle was more important. It, what government does. Not what government ought to do, but what government cannot help but do. That is, whatever regime you have will shape the souls of the citizens. So when you establish a regime, you're saying, this is what we hope it will, the, the impress we hope it will leave on people. And the economy, that's why it's called political economy that we have, the transactions, the cooperativeness, the commands, whatever, you are necessarily, when you establish a regime, you're establishing an aspiration for the character of people. Uh, which is why our politics 
always has been um, full of energy and high stakes because you are arguing about the souls of the citizens at all times. Uh, I'm standing between you and nourishment and strong drink, so I will subside. <laughs> but uh, it, it seems to me, Jeffrey, if you want to know where something changed, I mean, you're saying, well, how did we get here? It's when we went from free speech. Speech is about someone else. It's about persuasion. It requires patience. That's what democracy requires. We went from free speech to free expression. Expression's about you. It's, we went from a kind of other regarding virtue, speech, to solipsism. Expression was inherently good, protecting the expression. Never mind if people have anything worth expressing. <laughs> it's the sheer expressing of it that matters. I think it doesn't. I'm not a little ray of sunshine at any time. <laughs> uh, least of all, uh, on the cusp of the difficulties we're having because I think we've gone from speech, which is reasonable, persuasive, and other regarding, to expression, which is uh, self-absorbed. I, I must ask, though, because I think that you can provide an answer, why did that shift occur from speech to expression, from uh, virtue to uh, autonomy? In the, in the 60s, it was a cultural shift, but it must have been reflecting an awful lot of other shifts. Why did it happen? I think what happened, this goes all the way back to the 19th century. You can blame Marx, you can blame Hegel for Marx. Never mind. What happened in the 19th century, and it's live in the third decade of the 21st century, is we decided that human beings were not, there really is no such thing as human nature. That we are only people who acquire the impress of our particular surroundings, our culture. Once you say that, then the stakes of politics become enormous because politics and culture, everything becomes political because you are deciding with the laws you write and what you teach in schools, what culture will leave what impress on people. And when consciousness itself becomes a project, what you get is today. You get the woke and the anti-woke arguing with extreme heat and bitterness because what is at stake is the human nature we're going to acquire, not the human nature we have. Whereas the 30th president, the last one with whom I fully agreed, I refer, of course, to Coolidge. Uh, <laughs> Coolidge said in his magnificent address on the sesquicentennial of the Declaration of Independence. Since if there's a human nature, how restful it's settled. If there, are human, if there are natural rights, rights that are essential to the flourishing of people of our natures, how settled, how restful it is. When you drop that idea, you get today, which is not restful. Mm -mm for showing us the connection between the Declaration, human nature, virtue, happiness, and the future of the Republic. Please join me in thanking our panelists. <laughs>
Today's episode was produced by Advanced Staging Productions, Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and Samson Mastashare. It was engineered by Advanced Staging Productions and Bill Pollack. Research was provided by Samson Mastashare, Cooper Smith, and Yara Durese. As I mentioned, my new book came out on February 13th. It's The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and Defined America. If you'd like a signed book plate, email your address to me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, and I'll put one in the mail. Thanks so much to those listeners who've asked for book plates already and hope you're finding the book meaningful. Please recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone anywhere who's eager for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. Sign up for the newsletter at constitutioncenter.org forward slash connect. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. Support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership, or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including the podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.